0: Good morning, Sovereign Grace Church. Today I have the privilege of preaching to you again from the book of Revelation. Um, And last week we got to understand Revelation 4, and, and we saw the church marching in victory to the throne of God and casting their rewards before God for His work in them. And this week we'll be in chapter 5, But we're going to need a little bit more background to understand what's going on in chapter 5. And I think what's necessary for us to understand is the kingdom of God in Scripture. Kingdom of God in Scripture is the entire theme of the Bible. And if you remember from last week, we talked about how revelation all points to the glory of Jesus Christ, as does the entire Scripture. And so, if we don't understand the Kingdom of God, the theme of Scripture, we won't understand what John is presenting to us in the book of Revelation in Christ. If we don't understand the Kingdom, we won't understand the glory of Jesus Christ, particularly in the book of Revelation. And the Kingdom of God has been made very complicated throughout church history. There have been many trees that have died the death of a thousand words trying to explain what the kingdom of God is, uh, what it does, if, if we are the kingdom of God now, if that's something we await in the future, and, and I think our best bet for understanding the kingdom of God is just reading the scripture, amen? And I, I cannot promise you to, to be a perfect philosopher in the pulpit this morning. I can't promise you that I've read thousands of books on the kingdom of God. But I will read to you this morning scripture and what scripture presents about the kingdom of God. And I think as we do that, and as we understand what scripture has to say about the kingdom of God, we'll be right in line with John so that we can see the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, the kingdom of God... First is the universal kingdom over all creation. In Psalm 10 16, it says, Yahweh is king forever and ever. Psalm 103 19 says, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 145 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures from generation to generation. And if you read Genesis, the first character of the Bible is God. And you see God ruling over his entire creation. Yahweh has always been king over all his creation, and he will always be king. There has not been one point in time in history where Yahweh has not ruled over all his creation. And at the same time, as you progress through Scripture you see that Yahweh bestows the kingdom of creation to a particular individual. And I think this is incredibly important if we're understanding who Christ is and what he has done. And in the beginning, he creates Adam. And what does he tell Adam? Subdue the earth and have dominion over all creation. Adam was made in the image of God. He was to multiply and fill the earth. And in filling the earth and being obedient to the word of God, the king, kingly rule of Yahweh would be well represented and established in all creation. And we understand a little more in Daniel, whenever Nebuchadnezzar, he's ruling over Babylon, which was the world empire at the time. And he's given a dream. And the point of the dream, Daniel says, is to know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind. So there you have universal kingdom of God. And listen, and gives it to whomever he wishes. So Nebuchadnezzar was to understand that the kingdom over creation belonged to Yahweh, but it was given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar as he ruled over the earth. Just like Adam, he ruled over all creation. But if we understand the story, Adam fell and he sinned, and he was not able to subdue the earth or have dominion over it. His soul fell, and the kingdom was handed from Adam to Satan. But it's not left without promise, because in Genesis 3, when God curses the serpent, he says, there will be enmity between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so from the fall, where Adam was not worthy to reign over creation, God promised that a seed would come crush the serpent, taking back the kingdom of God and restoring the world like it was in the Garden of Eden. And... And so the Bible tells the rest of this story. What's interesting is that as you progress through the Bible, not only does God make that promise in Genesis 3, but he continues making promises over and over and over again. There are thousands of promises in the Bible, particularly concerning the kingdom of God. And one of those promises is to Abraham. And if you read Genesis carefully, you see that the same seed language is brought up says, your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And so Abraham is to understand that through the nation that would come from him, and through the people God was going to bring, there would be one in particular that would fulfill the promise to Eve. And at the end of Genesis, it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons, which would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Genesis 49, Jacob makes a promise to Judah. He says, Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so as Moses, he zooms in over and over again, looking at these genealogies in the book of Genesis, and he's trying to find the seed of promise. He's trying to see who would crush the serpent and take back the kingdom of the world for God. And at the end of Genesis... Jacob promises one of his sons that through him would come that ruler over the nations. And so the story goes on. This people becomes a nation. They're led out of slavery. They're given a law to keep so that God would dwell in their midst. But if you know the story, they were not able to keep that law. Because the problem couldn't be fixed by the law. The problem from the fall in Genesis was not able to be fixed by sacrifices. The problem was the heart of the people. So much so that when Moses is saying that the people are going into the land at the end of Deuteronomy, he notices something very important in Deuteronomy 29.4. He says, yet to this day, Yahweh your God has not given you a heart to know nor ears to hear. And so Moses, though given the law, saw the problem. He saw the problem back in Genesis. He said, even though Israel would go into the land, to that day, God had not given them a new heart. And the story goes on as they're in the land. God makes a promise to David from the tribe of Judah. And he hones in again on this line. And he says to David, that there will be one of his sons that will sit on his throne and his kingdom will endure forever. That God's loving kindness would not depart from him and that peace would go from Israel to all the nations and that the whole world because of this one seed of David would be at peace. And That's the same promise from Genesis 3. And God is continuing to hone in. He goes from Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah and now to David making promises along the way but then David's kingdom falls into the hands of his son who is not faithful Israel is not faithful and they're destroyed they're destroyed by many kingdoms of the world the glory of God departs from the temple the people are taken into captivity And during that time, thing we heard from Moses is promised again. The promise of a new heart where God would take the law and he would put it within his people. Where the law wouldn't be something external, but it would be something internal. And so the ancient problem from Genesis 3 would be fixed by this new covenant. And to Daniel, like we read this morning, he saw the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. And to him, if you remember what we had read this morning, listen to the language of Daniel 7. He came near before him. Remember the promises to Eve, to Judah, and to Abraham, to him and even to Adam. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Daniel sees this one. And what's interesting about what Daniel sees is that this one goes up into the heavenly temple. He's not just a man. And the prophets, as they're prophesying about the new covenant, they recognize that their Messiah would be Yahweh. If you read Zechariah 12 through 14, you'll see that they'll look on me, whom they have pierced. And God identifies himself with the Messiah. And so, as Jesus, right on time, according to Daniel... Luke records the song of Zechariah, his father, or Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and accomplished redemption for his people. It's the new covenant. And raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, the Davidic covenant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father. To grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him of our days. And so we see the promised seed and we see Him come on the scene. After thousands of years of waiting for this problem to be fixed, and as God zooms in through genealogies, and He finds this one seed in which He is well pleased, we realize that all the promises of God don't depend on man's obedience, they don't depend on a nation, but they depend on one man, that would crush the head of the serpent. That's some heavy responsibility on someone's shoulders because David couldn't do it. He was a man after God's own heart. Abraham couldn't do it. He was the man of faith. And John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived according to Jesus, couldn't do it. But all of God's purposes in history depend upon this Christ. And Paul tells us that this is Christ's purpose. He says, Then comes the end when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so there you go. What Adam was supposed to be as representative ruler for God in the garden, in which he failed, the last Adam will accomplish. The true and better Adam will accomplish. So he would bring all things back into subjection into God. That's our soul, that's the nations, that's all peoples everywhere. That's creation itself, the curse will be undone because of the work of Jesus Christ. And men go back and forth on this, sadly, where on one hand you have one position arguing for the kingdom of God and another arguing for a position on the kingdom of God. But everything that we've just said, if you just read the text, if you just read scripture, that's where you land as you see all things in every single promise in Scripture depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God's purposes and all his ways are unchangeable. He doesn't have to erase anything. But in all those promises, in everything he ever gave to his people, he will fulfill every single one in Jesus Christ. And that is the select seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And that's why Christ is the heart of Scripture. That's why when you read Genesis, you can understand that Christ is the point. That Moses is looking for the promised seed. And the seed goes on and on and on until you get to Matthew. And what does Matthew say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he traces the Davidic line up to Jesus Christ. And so in Revelation, like I said last week, ties that together with a beautiful bow. It's showing us how God intends to accomplish all his purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how all things, how the heartbeat of scripture will find its home in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And and this this is the end goal. This is from Revelation. It says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And so Christ will abolish all rule, and authority, and power, much so that he'll abolish death itself, and in Christ, he will set up the kingdom of God, and he will rule as Adam should have ruled, thus restoring all things back to God. And so this morning, we come to Revelation 5, and we come to a pivotal moment in the history of redemption. Last week we saw, like I said, the church coming before God, being presented as a rewarded group, and at the end of chapter 4 they praise him for his will in creation, and how God by his own will and authority has created all things. And by the end of chapter 5 we'll see all things, and all things created, worshiping God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so if you would, Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven... I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And the elders fell down and worshipped. Would you pray with me? Yahweh our God, by your spirit would you grant to us this morning that we would see the worthiness of Christ. Would you please open our eyes to his beauty and his glory. Father, I pray that whatever we've had going on this week, that you would clear all things from our minds so that we would see Christ. Father, all your plans depend upon him. And you have chosen him to be our Savior so that we would be with him always. And so, Lord... Would you bless your people this morning and would your word go forth so that by it we would see your glorious Christ and how in him all your plans are yes and amen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so this chapter is divided into three sections. First, you have the deed to creation you have the king of creation, and then you have the response of creation. That's the deed, the king, and the response. And so verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And if you're following the story of the kingdom of God, you'll remember how Daniel was given the vision that would describe all of redemptive history. It would describe up to the point when everlasting righteousness would come in, where God would dwell with his people and all things would be made new. And at the end of Daniel, he tells Daniel to seal up the things that he had seen because now was not the time for those things to take place. And Daniel being given visions of the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of all prophecy. How heartbreaking that would have been to know that now was not the time to seal up the scroll, to seal up the things that he had seen in the book. And so here we see a sealed scroll. And it has seven seals on it. In ancient culture, the legal documents were sealed. In Rome, they had seven seals pertaining to seven witnesses who affirmed the legal right of whatever was in the document. And so throughout Revelation, this is the backbone of the book. You have the scroll being unrolled and judgment poured out on the earth. As each seal is broken, so judgment befalls the earth, and it ends in culmination with the Lord Jesus Christ returning to the earth and destroying his enemies. And following the storyline of scripture, you see that the kingdom of God depends on the shoulders of this seed. And that to Daniel it was sealed up in a book. It was concealed because now was not the time. But the beginning of Revelation says that now is the time. There is nothing else that must take place before the kingdom of God is established. That's what's next, and it depends upon the shoulders of Christ. And so you see in the right hand of God, his mighty arm, the scroll that will take back the earth, and as I read earlier, will take the kingdoms of the world and make them the kingdom of the Lord God the Almighty and of his Christ. And you can feel this with John. He knows the prophets. Revelation 4 and 5 is exactly parallel to Daniel 7. And John knows that that scroll has been sealed up since ancient time. That it had not yet been time. And now John is taken to the heavenly temple, and in the right hand of God, he sees that will for creation. And he sees the will for the rest of redemptive history. And you can almost see through his eyes and understand through his heart that this is the culmination of all redemptive history. Somebody please open it. Amen. (laughs) All the suffering that the church is experiencing. All the suffering of the seven churches. All the waiting on Christ to return. Would the Lord open the scroll that the kingdom of God would reign over the entire earth suffering and pain would not be any more but there's an obstacle to this in verse 2 i saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals the obstacle isn't the angel the obstacle is worthiness to open the scroll who is worthy Who is able to take upon them all the plans of God from the beginning? Who is worthy to bear that weight on their shoulders? Who in heaven, verse 3, or on earth or under the earth could bear that responsibility? That all the many promises of God and all of scripture be fulfilled. Who is worthy to open the scroll? And it says in verse 3, no one. No one in heaven. Not one angel, not the guardian angels of the presence of God who are in his inner circle, the true presence of God. They're not worthy to take the scroll. The glorified elders are not worthy to take this scroll. That's including Paul. Paul is not worthy to take the scroll. No one on the earth, no king, no man, no ruler, no Roman emperor, no king over all the earth was worthy. Not even under the earth, no one who had died, no demon Not even Satan was worthy to bear that responsibility on his shoulders. So no wonder in verse 4, John begins to weep loudly. Because as this scroll, sealed up from ancient time, is sitting in the hand of Almighty God, only one requirement is needed to open the scroll. But not one angel did. or any created thing is able to open the scroll. So it's as if all the plans of God, all the fulfillment of what God has willed from ancient time is now brought to none. All things in the scroll can't be opened. And so John begins to weep. But in verse five, it says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seeds. This brings us to the second section of the chapter, the king of creation. And at the beginning, the elder says in the ESV, weep no more. The best translation of this is, stop crying, exclamation point. Not a hallmark response, weep no more. But stop crying. It's inappropriate. Because there is one worthy. And if you had recalled to mind the word of God, you would not be crying. Because as your faith depends upon that one whom you saw with your very eyes, you would not be weeping. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember from Genesis 49, the promise to Judah that all the obedience of the peoples would belong to him. The Root of David. Remember the promise to David. This became something the prophets would speak of when they were in exile. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. He will strike the earth With the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will put the wicked to death. And so, you have from the beginning in Genesis, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and from the end of prophetic history, while they're in exile, while all hope seemed lost, the root of David. They say, He has conquered. He has conquered. And last week we n- noticed that that on the earth was not through taking over Rome, it was not through overthrowing the rulers of the kingdom of the world, but it was through his death that he conquered. And this conquering has given him the right to that scroll. Christ as God has always had the right. But the writer of Hebrews says that in his incarnation he had to learn obedience. So just the same way in his incarnation Christ had to accomplish obedience so as to buy the scroll. And it's by his conquering that he has obtained the legal right to the scroll. And right here... If you're picking up on this, this is something interesting because what's about to take place in Revelation is the conquering of the earth and all of Christ's enemies. But here the elder says that Christ has conquered, past tense. And this is Christ's select achievement. It's not conquering the earth, but it's the conquering work he did on the cross and in his resurrection. And it's through that work that he has conquered. And so it's as if the judgment of the world, the purging of the earth, setting fire to the sin on this world is a mere snowball effect to the conquering work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And and you may say, how can that be? How can overthrowing the earth, how can taking back the earth for himself and all peoples be greater than a small death in a small town? And if you think that, you must understand the problem from Genesis. You have to understand your sin. You have to understand what took place when Adam disobeyed God. Because it's no small act for Christ to conquer sin. It's no small thing for him to die and to be raised from the grave, conquering death. And it's no small thing for your sin to be placed on his shoulders for him to bear. Sin is the most invasive of diseases. No psychological help can save you from your sin. No friend can give you good advice for your sin. No family member can provide you enough comfort for your sin. Your sin is an incurable disease apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And Christ has conquered. And He has offered for all who believe in Him for that problem from ancient time to be fixed for God to reconcile your soul to himself. And that is how Christ conquered. And all judgment in the book of Revelation on the earth is finishing that work. And the cross becomes central to redemptive history. The cross is the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. In verse 6, says, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He sees a lamb, a little lamb. This word could be described as a pet, certainly not a lion, certainly not something to oppose the dragon in chapter 12. And it's standing as the throne of God stood in chapter 4. He is set in his place. And it's standing as though it had been slain. The centerpiece of heaven is Christ's atoning work for your sin. And what John sees is not a mighty lion who's going to conquer all of his enemies on the earth. That will take place. But he sees the lamb of God. The lamb that was promised to Abraham. The lamb of the Passover. The lamb on the day of atonement. The writer of Hebrews says that Christ, the Lamb of God, walked into the true Holy of Holies, offering up his own blood to God, but he sat down at the right hand of God, making atonement for his people. And here we have Christ as the perfect sacrifice for your sin, walking up to the throne of God, standing in heaven, as slain but yet alive, But what kind of power could such a small animal have over his enemies? That's why John says he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And for animals, horns, especially in biblical time, were representative of their ability to overtake their enemies. And they were representative of what that animal was capable of doing in defense and offense and he has seven horns. he has complete power and he has complete ability as though a lamb through his work on the cross complete ability to take the scroll and he says it has seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God and this is exactly what Isaiah said: "The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God." And Jesus himself reads this when he goes in the temple, in Luke, or excuse me, the synagogue in Luke four of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he closes the book. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But if you caught what he did not read, it was the second half of the part of that scroll to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And so here in heaven, you see the Lamb of God, having suffered and been slain for sin, standing in the throne room of God, in the very center of the temple in heaven. And he has seven eyes, the fullness of the Spirit, like Isaiah said he would have. But this time, in the book of Revelation, he is to proclaim the day of vengeance of God. He is taking back what is his and making what has been wrong right. In verse 7, because of these things, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. The Lamb of God in the throne room of God the guardian angels of God's presence with eyes all around, making sure that no one gets to the throne, that God's presence is revered, that no glorified saint walks into the very heart of the throne room of God, that that glassy sea is kept clear so that God would be revered as the only holy God. And the Lamb walks straight through them, And he takes the scroll out of the mighty hand of God, thus proclaiming himself to be worthy. What worth is this Christ? That he can walk through the very heart of God's throne. That he can take something that belongs to God upon himself. And that's exactly what Daniel saw. He came near before the Ancient of Days. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. The lamb who was slain coming up to the one on the throne to take back what belonged to God, which was lost in the garden. And recognize the gravity of this. I can't can't preach to you the full weight of who Christ is. This gave me much trouble this morning. Knowing that I cannot stand here and tell you of the glories of Christ. That I could not stand here for hours and hours and days and weeks and tell you of the amount of weight that is being placed on Christ's shoulders. That I can't understand with the smallest inch what is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. But please notice the glory of Christ here, that he of his own initiative takes upon himself all the will of God for the rest of your soul, all souls, all creation. And so this brings us to verse 8, which is the last section of this passage. The response of creation. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And just like the church and the cherubim in chapter 4, fall down before the Father, so they fall down before Christ. Christ has taken all the will of the Father, and he has placed it upon himself. And thus, the church and the cherubim, we fall down before Christ. John says that we'll hold a harp and golden bowls of incense. And scholars agree that the instruction of the Greek here informs you that it's the elders holding the harp and the bowls of incense. And this makes sense because you remember the 24 courses of priests. The priests leading the worship in the throne room. The priests singing to the glory of God. The priests in the Old Testament held the bowls of incense. And the priestly divisions were in charge of the worship in the temple. And so They hold these items of worship, which obviously accompany song, and they accompany glory to God. But I think MacArthur observes something more here. Because he notes in the Old Testament that harps were not only used in worship, but they were used when prophets would prophesy. And Elisha, before he could prophesy, asked someone to play the harp. And in the temple, the bowls of incense were burning, symbolizing the prayers of the saints rising up to God. But at the same time, those prayers and that incense would burn most greatly whenever they prayed for their salvation. And they prayed that God would rescue them from their enemies, that he would restore them. Here in Revelation, then, we don't just... but we have the church presenting to Christ a desire for all prophecy that God the Father had ever spirit that he had ever willed for his creation presenting all prophecy to the lamb of god and then presenting all the prayers of the saints for those things to be fulfilled to the lamb of god and so all things that the father has willed for the redemption of his people are now being presented to the lamb who is worthy It's as if we're asking him, all the prayers for your kingdom to come and your will to be done are now being handed to Christ. Asking, carry out this task. And so we sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. We sing the worthiness of Christ for what he has done in us. That he has made us a kingdom. Right now, as Christ's church, we are the kingdom of God on the earth. And right now, we proclaim the excellencies of him who has made us a royal priesthood to God. And we proclaim that gospel to the world. And it says that by His work, by His ransoming of His people, that they will also reign on the earth. And so we see that in Revelation 19, when Christ comes back, He comes back with His saints. He comes back and He reigns on the earth. And what an all-encompassing kingdom of God, that not only does Christ reign in His church, but that Christ as the true Adam will restore all things and will continue to reign with him there. Paul looks forward to this. And he actually, he's rebuking the Corinthian church for assuming that they had been reigning at the present time. He says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have ruled without us. And how I wish that you had ruled Indeed, so that we might also rule with you. And in his last letter, he said, If we endure, we will reign with him. And so Paul knows that when we reign with Christ, we will all reign with Christ. And in doing so, that is Christ's accomplishment in his church. And so in verse 11 and 12... We see this praise reverberating from the church to all of heaven. It says, I look and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And this, this phrase, myriads of myriads, Thousands of thousands, the highest number in Greek. And it says ten thousands and ten thousands and thousands of thousands. And the point is not to do the math. The point is to understand this mighty chorus in heaven. This mighty, innumerable multitude praising God for what he has done. And they're saying, worthy is the Lamb. They recognize with the church that Christ is worthy to accomplish all things. And verse 13 and 14. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all the... ...who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And so that praise that reverberated from the church to all of heaven now goes out into all of creation where they give glory to where glory is due, where the world up to this moment has rejected Christ and tried to hide Christ and tried to ignore God. Heaven will willingly sing. Of the glory of God and of his Christ. And then creation. though unwillingly. Will sing of the glory of God and of his Christ. And they say that. We ought to be bound forever and ever. Which is an interesting problem. Chapter 6. Who will cry. To hide themselves from the wrath of God and of the Lamb. They will cry for the rocks to fall on them because they are not filled with Christ. But these same men are brought low to their knees and creation bows to the Lamb in heaven. And this is what Paul is speaking of when he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in Revelation 5, you see that moment. When Christ will take the role, and he'll take it from the mighty hand of his Father, so as to accomplish all things for redemptive history. And all things that will be conquered will bow their knee to Christ, And this is much different than what happened when when he was born in a stable to a lowly family. No trees crying out of the of him and his father. No kings of the earth bowing down before him. But some shepherds, some men from Babylon, they come to worship Christ. But here, what we see is the Lamb of God gets the glory that is due His name. And that what He did not receive when He came to the earth, when He begins to take back the earth for His God and Father, when He begins to reign over the creation so that He may present it to God the Father, all creation, all men, everywhere, will bow their knee to Jesus Christ. And can you imagine such a sound? Can you imagine the song that we'll sing around that mighty throne? We will begin to sing the glory of Jesus Christ. And that praise will go from us to the angels. And then from the angels to all creation. As Christ begins to... all things for his God and Father. And this is no fantasy. This is not something that, that is merely symbolic that we can't understand. This was meant to be a blessing to us. And so in heaven, we will see the Lamb walk right up to his Father. And we'll be there And we won't miss it. And if you would, can't resist doing this, would you please turn to Revelation 19. (coughs) Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, is the moment in time which all of The seals of the scroll had been broken, and all the judgments of God on the earth have been poured out. And it is now time, like I read earlier, for Christ to reign. And this is the moment in history that all of the New Testament cries out for. Where you see the suffering servant, the lowly man, born in a stable to poor men and women. Not recognized as king, but destroyed by the earth, but raised again to the And as all judgment through the Lamb's power has been poured out on the earth, in verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head is no crown of thorns but many diadems. Having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And not being naked, but being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And his people have scattered in shame. But the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Do not come cries of a suffering Messiah on the cross, but a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And He has on His garment and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And there you have Christ. And you have Christ coming to the earth, bearing the weight of all things upon His shoulders. Having poured out judgment on the earth, so that now, as God bestowed the kingdom over creation to men before, can now bestow it upon his Christ. And now, creation is no longer in the hands of men like Nebuchadnezzar or nations, but is now in the hands of God's Son the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. Every kingdom will fall, every wicked ideology, every wicked man. There will be none in the entire creation. All things created will sing to the praise of Christ, where the last Adam will perfectly fulfill the commission of the first Adam. The king of kings will reign over the entire creation. Where Adam failed, Christ will succeed. The seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of Abraham will possess the gates of his enemies. The seed of Judah will have the obedience of all the peoples. The son of David will reign on his father's throne. The city of Jerusalem will be at peace with the cities of the world. Where all nations will worship the king of kings. And where creation itself will be made again like the garden. And then he hands the kingdom over to his God and father. Ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. Just as Paul looked forward to. So is Christ this big to you? Christ, the one on whose shoulders all this responsibility lies. Because this is Yahweh's Christ. This is where all responsibility will fall in the end. And we depend upon Him to fulfill these things. And we await His return to fulfill these things. And so we all say, Come, Lord Jesus, and let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And thus, when he takes the scroll, we shall all worship him in fullness for what he will begin to do. And I look forward to that day where we surround the throne together, glorified saints of the Lord. And we sing in that mighty chorus. Amen.